Glad you guys could be here to join us for worship today. Um, I have the privilege of opening God's word with you, but before we do that, I just wanted to give you a little update on where things are headed. We're going into the summer season and then fall's coming up just a, a couple of few months from now. And so in the fall, in September, we're going to uh, launch a new ministry that we've never tried before here at Lakeview Church, and we're calling it Gospel Communities. And you might say, uh, well, haven't we been having Gospel Community Night and watching The Chosen all year? Yes, we have. We've been doing that on purpose to get you used to the first week of the month being Gospel Community Week. But in September, we're going to uh, start gospel communities that are a little bit different than what we've been doing on Sunday nights. And I just want to kind of give you uh, an, a bird's eye view of what that looks like. First of all, what are gospel communities? Gospel communities will be medium-sized groups. So a lot of churches have small groups. We're starting medium-sized groups. And these are groups of about five to ten households or somewhere between 15 and 40 people. Right, So a medium-sized group, the gospel community is hopefully going to take on kind of the feel of a small little house church. Um, so gospel communities uh, will meet once a month. The first week of the month will be gospel community week. And so we're going to ask gospel communities to gather together that first week of the month. And you'll have a meal together. You can pray together. You can sing. If you want to sing in your gospel community, you can sing. If you want to uh, do whatever you could do. But it's, it's really that time to get together. Uh, to share what God's doing in your lives and to pray for one another and to have a meal together and build those relational connections that are so important for spiritual growth. Gospel communities are going to be uh, led by overseers. Uh, remember, we transitioned our elder board into the overseers of God's flock. And their res- primary responsibility is going to be uh, knowing well the condition of the gospel community that they lead. So how do we know uh, what your prayer needs are. How, do we, how can we be praying for you consistently, not just once a year, but all through the year? Well, we, we need to get you into smaller groups with an overseer so we can hear how your life is going, what God's doing, what your challenges are. And then when we have our elder meetings, they can bring that back and say, here's how my people are doing and here's how you can pray for them and we'll pray for you at our meetings all the way through the year. Uh, so gospel communities are really important. Um, they will help us love and care for you well. And gospel communities will also uh, be a relational context for discipleship and spiritual growth. Our job as a church isn't to become the next megachurch. That's not what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, that's not our target. That's not our goal. Our, our job as a church isn't to fill all the seats and, and increase revenue. Uh, that's not what we're trying to do. Our job as a church is to be disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. It's to be people who are actually following Jesus together and are helping other people take whatever their next step with Jesus is. And we want to do that faithfully with however many people God chooses to send us. If God says, you can do that faithfully with 200, then we'll be a church of 200. And we will love and care for and disciple 200 to the best of our ability. If God says you could be a church of 600, then we'll be a church of 600. He'll send us the people. He'll put people in your path that you can invite, and they'll come. And we'll disciple and love the people that he sends us, whether it's 200, 600, 1,000, or 6,000, or whatever. Our goal isn't to become the next megachurch. Our goal is to love the people that God sends us well and to help them grow in Christ. And in order to do that, we need to know them. We need to know each other. We need to relate to one another Um, differently than spiritual shoppers. 
right? Uh, so when you bump into somebody in the Walmart aisle or you see somebody shopping down the aisle from you, you don't necessarily know them. You don't feel connected to them. You're not related to them. They're just another shopper in Walmart who happens to be in the same aisle as you. But that's not how we can be as a church. We need to know each other, love each other, serve each other. We need to relate to one another as a spiritual family. And in order to do that, we need to get into smaller contexts where we can connect and grow, where we can share uh, a common identity, and that is being disciples of Jesus. So that's what gospel communities are all about. We're going to start them in September. They'll be the first week of the month. Now, September will be a little different because the first week is a holiday week, so we'll actually bump it to the second week, but we'll tell you more about that as it gets coming. Um, the reason I'm announcing that this morning, and you're like, hey, it's only just now June. Why are you talking about September? Uh, don't steal my summer, right? Uh, <coughs> The reason that I'm announcing it this morning is because one of, the th- one of the things that we need to figure out over the next couple of months is how many gospel communities are we going to need? How many people in our church family are interested in joining and being a part of a gospel community and praying for one another and growing spiritually in that way? And so if you could find in the seat pocket near you this little card that says Connect Card, what I want to do is take just a couple of minutes this morning— And um, on the Connect card, you could put today's date and your name or the name of your household. uh, And then you could fill out anything else you want to fill out on that. But really, uh, there's uh, some checkboxes at the bottom. And one of them is, I would like more information about gospel communities. Uh, So if if that's something that you're interested in, something you're willing to pray about, uh, we're just trying to get a, a number. Because 200 people in gospel communities is different than 60. (laughs) And so we need to figure out how many we're going to need, and that will help us. We'll do this announcement a few more times through the summer so we can catch everybody, uh, because some people are sick or on vacation or whatever. But uh, you can do that, and then on your way out, there are little black uh, boxes that say offering boxes. Just drop your card in the box, and we'll collect it, and then we'll know, and we'll start building a list of people uh, who might be interested in being part of a gospel community. So thank you for doing that. Uh, I think that's all that the, I'm going to announce this morning. Uh, let's jump into the scriptures. I'll give you just a minute to fill that card out, and then we'll turn in Matthew's gospel. All right, let's go into Matthew's gospel. If you'll find Matthew chapter 6, we're going to pick it up at verse 19. We're continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount. And while you're finding Matthew 6, let me put this question in the back of your mind. What is success? As as we're preaching through the passage today, keep this question in the back of your mind. What is success? Recently, my kids discovered the game of life. You remember that game? Uh, where you have the little spinning dial and then the, the little car and the little pink p- pegs and blue pegs and you get to go around and decide are you going to college or career or you have kids or not, you get married or not and all that stuff. Um, the game of life. And at the end of the game of life, when you reach the retirement place, uh, the one who has the most money or the most net worth wins the game. Right? And so my boys are, oh, well, I was only worth $1.7 million, darn it, you know, and, and whatever. My brother was worth 4 2 and, and, what, and it's like, yeah, okay, guys. Uh, everything's a competition in our house. But um, 
the game of life. And, and as I was watching them play, it really reminded me of this question. Well, what is success? How do you know that you've won the game when you reach the end? It's graduation season. And when you talk to parents uh, of, of students, especially those who are graduating, you say, well, what is, what is your hope and what are your hopes and dreams for your kid as they're graduating and going on to the next adventure? And the, by far the most common answer is, well, I just want him to be happy. I just want her to be happy. And the second most common answer is, I want him to be successful. I want her to be a success in life. So what does that mean to be a success in life? That's what we're going to be talking about as we go through the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And uh, last week, um, Pastor Josh preached through the Lord's Prayer, and that was a turning point in the Sermon on the Mount. So this is a, we call it the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus gave the sermon from a mountainside. So I thought this morning we could think of it as if we were going on a hike with Jesus climbing a mountain. This is a, a good analogy. And so last week we reached the peak of the mountain and now we're coming down the other side. But let me just sort of walk us through where we've been so far. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. So you can imagine, this is like meeting with the guide at the base of the mountain, and he's pointing out all of the, the, the features of the mountain. Look at this mountain. Look at the peak. Look at the valleys. Look at the ravines. Look at the, this is the mountain. This is God's mountain, the mountain of life, the mountain of the kingdom of God. And we're going to hike that mountain, and he's telling you all about it. He gives you this glimpse of God's kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek right? Blessed are the peacemakers. This is the blessed life. This is the flourishing life. This is the mountain of God's kingdom. And then he said, I want you to hike this mountain with me. Follow me up the side of the mountain to the summit. Further up, further in to the peak, the mountain of God's kingdom, life in God's kingdom. He invited us to be salt and light. I don't, I don't want to just show you what the mountain looks like. I actually want you to be the salt and light. I want you to be uh, the kingdom people. I want you to hike this mountain and live this life in front of others so that they can see the love of Christ in you. I want you to be the salt of the earth that brings out the God flavors in the world. I want you to be the light that shines forth the beauty of God's love into the lives of those around you. And to do that, you need to be hiking this mountain and living this kingdom life. And then he said, in order to climb the mountain, in order to live the kingdom life, you must have a greater righteousness. A greater righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Otherwise, you can never set foot on the mountain and climb. You'll never reach the summit if you don't have a greater righteousness. And that was all in the introduction. And now he says, let's climb and I'll show you what greater righteousness looks like. So <clears throat> a few weeks ago, Jesus taught us that, number one, there's a greater righteousness than self-righteousness. There's a deeper holiness than moral performance. If you want to get to the peak, you have to have a greater righteousness, and there's a greater righteousness than self-righteousness. Self-righteousness pops up in a couple of different ways that Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount. It pops up in behavior management, and it pops up in image management. right? And Jesus says, no, there's, there's a greater righteousness than that self-righteousness. Self-righteous people oftentimes look at others, and they compare themselves, and they say, well, I'm not as bad as that person. Well, I haven't done those things. 
I've never committed murder. I haven't cheated on my wife. I haven't done these things. I'm not a liar all the time like that person is. I'm better than they are. And Jesus says, no, that's not the kind of kingdom life that I'm inviting you to live. There's something better than that. So he, he taught us that heart transformation is better than behavior management. Right? Heart transformation is deeper than behavior management. God cares more about who you are than what you do. Does God care about what we do? Absolutely, he does. But he cares more about who we are. Because if who we are changes, then what we do will also change. If our heart is transformed, then our behaviors will follow. So we saw Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying things like, you know, I'm glad you haven't murdered anyone. That's good. Don't go out and commit murder. But there's something better than that. I'm glad you haven't murdered anyone, but you are such an angry person. You have hatred in your heart and murder in your mouth. That's not the kingdom life. You know, I'm, thankfully you haven't actually committed murder, but you are walking around enslaved to anger. That's not the life that I've called you to lead, right? Uh, we saw him saying things like, I'm glad that you care about justice, but don't be such a vengeful person. Your thirst to seek revenge against anyone who crosses you and to retaliate when they insult you is going to rob you of your life. It's going to steal your joy. You are enslaved by vengeance. It's great that you have a desire for justice, but don't pervert that into revenge. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Trust that God will enact the justice. And if we really want to be agents of God's justice, live generously toward those in need. Give freely to the poor. Then you'll see God's justice at work. Right? There's a better righteousness than behavior management and that's heart transformation it's not just about what you do but it's about who you are we also saw a few weeks ago that jesus taught us that integrity is better than image management just like heart transformation is better than behavior management integrity is better than image management god cares more about who you are than who others think you are god cares more about our actual lives than our instagram lives God says, look, it's great that you pray and give and fast. But do you pray and give and fast in secret too? Are, are you as devoted to God in private as you are at church? Are you as serious about your faith on Thursday morning at school as you were on Wednesday night at youth group? Right? Jesus says, look, I care more about who you actually are than who you pretend to be. In front of other people. I want your heart to be changed. I want you to have integrity. I want you to be the same person on the inside as you are on the outside. I want you to be the same Christian in private as you are at church around your Christian friends. And, and, and if we are the same person on the inside as we are on the outside, we won't have to present some false image of ourselves. We don't have to manage our image. We don't have to invest in that. Because Image management is not as good as integrity. This first uh, hike that Jesus was taking us on is all about th this greater righteousness, a righteousness that is greater than self-righteousness because it's about who we are and who we are becoming. Um, <clears throat> anybody remember the, the first Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire? The good one? Right? <clears throat> yeah, see, so uh, in that first Spider, in the good Spider-Man movie, in the first Spider-Man movie, uh, with Tobey Maguire, there's this scene where Peter Parker is, is angry and, and frustrated with, his, with Uncle Ben, and Uncle Ben drives him to the library, and then as he's getting out of the car, Uncle Ben says, Peter, you're becoming now 
the man that you will be for the rest of your life. Peter's in high school at this point. You're becoming now the man that you will be for the rest of your life. What kind of man are you becoming? And Peter like slams the door and walks off in a huff, you know, and then later that night, Uncle Ben gets killed. I think that principle is true. That's kind of what Jesus is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount. We are all becoming now the people we will be for eternity. See, the Christian life isn't just believe these things are true, sign off in this doctrinal statement, and then someday when you die, you'll escape the world and go to heaven. That's not what the Christian message is about. That's not what the gospel is about. Jesus is saying, you're becoming right now the kind of person you will be for all of eternity. What kind of person are you becoming now? Who are you being formed into? What kind of life are you living now? And there's a better, greater righteousness than behavior management or image management or self-righteousness. There's something deeper becoming the kind of person that God designed you to be for all of eternity. The second thing that Jesus, so he teaches us about this and he says, okay, let's go on the next leg of the hike. And he leads us up to the peak of the mountain. The Sermon, on the, Mount, or the, the Sermon on the Mount has at its very center the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in the exact center. It is the mountain peak. If the Sermon on the Mount is a mountain, it's the, it's the summit, it's the pinnacle, it's the view, it's the lookout where you pull over and park and see the, the wonderful. So what Jesus is teaching us in the Lord's Prayer is this. The pinnacle of human existence is a loving relationship with our Father in heaven. That's how the Lord's Prayer begins. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The peak at the top of the mountain of life is to love and be loved by God. Earlier I said, what is success? Jesus defines success in the opening words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is success, being able to pray that prayer. Not just to say those words. Anyone can say those words, but can you actually pray that prayer? Are those words true of you? The pinnacle of human existence, the ultimate meaning in life is to be in a loving relationship with God as your father with the the creator of the universe as the father and shepherd of your soul. Our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, to live, to glorify him forever and ever. That is the ultimate meaning of life. Life life does not find its meaning in self-indulgence. Life finds its meaning in intimacy with the father. Freedom in life is not found in getting to do whatever you want. It's found through the blood of Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose again to set us free from sin and death so that everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ and gives their life to him, even if they die, they will be raised again and never die forever. That's freedom, to be free from the power of death. That's what freedom in life is. It's found in Jesus. Purpose and meaning in life isn't found in chasing your career or going further up to the right in your, uh, in your investment portfolio and, and having more and more and more. That's not what meaning and purpose in life is. Meaning and purpose in life is found in the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit who dwells in your body when you give your life to Christ. And he empowers you and equips you to pour God's love into the lives of others. That's what meaning and purpose in life is all about. The pinnacle of human existence is a loving relationship 
with our Father in heaven. That is success. And listen, parents, just for a moment. We all want, I've got four kids and another on the way. We all want our kids to be successful in life. We want them to get good grades in school. We want them to work hard. We want them to get a good scholarship, to go to college. We want them to have a good career. We want them to get married and have their own kids someday. And we want all those things for them. But if you do uh, make sure that your kids accomplish all of those things, and they're 25, and they've got their degree, and they've got their career started, and they're in a relationship, and all these things, and they don't know Jesus, what have you accomplished with them? Nothing. Nothing. It doesn't matter if your kid surpasses Elon Musk as the richest person in the world. If they don't know Jesus, at the end of their life, they have nothing. We have accomplished nothing. Our entire job as a parent is to lead our kids to know and love Jesus. I know they have to make their own decision in that, but we need to do everything we can to lead them to the foot of the cross so that they can choose for themselves whether or not they're going to follow Jesus. That's success. That's what's most important. And all the other things will follow. We'll we'll see that in the passage we're going to look at today. So Jesus has brought us up to the peak, the pinnacle, the top of the mountain of human life, and it is to be in a loving relationship with God as our Father. And then we get into the, the next part of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to look at today. And the big idea here is there's only one path to that peak. And that path is being wholly devoted to God alone. There's only one path that leads to the summit. It's the path of following Jesus together. Now, I know, I know, you say, wait a minute, Pastor Andy, that's not what my uh, science teacher says, that's what my sociology teacher says, that's what my philosophy teacher said. There are many paths up the mountain. Dr. Phil said it on Oprah, must be true. Right? That's the, it's not politically correct to say there's only one path up the mountain. There are many paths up the mountain. And let me say this. It's true that there are many paths up the mountain. The world has its own mountain. And the peak of the world's mountain is self-actualization. Do whatever. The the whole universe is all about you. It's like the people that wrote that, you know, Maslow, uh, his parents must have never told him, hey, guess what? The world doesn't revolve around you, buddy, when he was a toddler. Nobody ever taught him that. Because he grew up and he wrote Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And at the pinnacle of Maslow's mountain is self-actualization. Everything in life is all about you. And the peak of your human existence is to actualize yourself. And if that's true, if that's the mountain you're climbing, there are about 8 billion people on planet Earth. So there are about 8 billion paths to self-actualization. Great. Many paths up to the mountain. But God's mountain isn't the same mountain. The world's on a completely different mountain than God. And the peak and the summit of God's mountain isn't self-actualization. It's being in an intimate, loving relationship with God. And we can climb all the paths on the world's mountains that we want, but those paths will not lead us to the top of God's mountain because we're hiking on a different mountain. And the mountains are worlds apart, right? So it's true. There are many paths to the top of the mountain of self-actualization. There is only one path to the top of the mountain of God's kingdom and intimacy with the Father. And that path is being wholly devoted to God alone. That's what Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 19 and going through the end of the chapter. First, he shows us that your heart can only be in one place at a time. See verse 19. 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? (laughs) Your heart can only be in one place at a time. You're either looking at treasures in heaven or looking at treasures in earth. Your, your heart is either in heaven or it's on the things of earth. Are you on God's mountain or are you on the world's mountain? You can't be in two places at once. And there's only one path that leads to God's mountain. So Jesus says, put your heart there. He, your heart can only be in one place at a time. And then he says, your eyes can only focus on one thing at a time. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, this doesn't seem to quite make sense. If your eye is healthy, you'll be full of light. If your eye is not healthy, you won't be full of light. Does that mean uh, people that have 20-20 vision are more spiritually uh, mature than people who don't? I hope not. Right? That's not what he's talking about. Uh, it's really hard to translate from one language into another sometimes. The word that is translated in English there as healthy is the word single. You understand why we chose to translate it healthy. If your eye is single, well, does that mean my eye's not dating? Uh, I don't know. That, right? what, it, what it means is whole or single. I have a, a single apple. I don't have four or five apples sliced up all in my plate. No, all of the apple slices that are on my plate are from a single apple, right? I have a single orange. I have a whole orange. What he's saying is, if your eye is single, did you know that your eyes can only focus on a single thing at a time? So put your, put your hands up, out, humor me for a minute, straight out in front of you, about shoulder length apart. Now, try to focus on both your hands at once. You can't do it. You go cross-eyed. Right? Now, if you look at one hand, you can still see the other hand move in your peripheral vision, but you can only focus on one thing at a time. And Jesus is teaching us here, look, your eyes cannot be looking at God's mountain over here and looking at the world's mountain over here. You won't get to the top of God's mountain if your eyes are trying to look at both at the same time. You'll stumble and fall off the cliff. It's not going to work. In order to climb the summit of God's mountain to intimacy with the Father, your eyes have to be fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, as your guide up the mountain. You have to be fixed on the things of God. Your eyes can only focus on one thing at a time. If you have double vision, you won't make it. You can't hold on to the world with one hand and God with the other. You have to choose which path you're going to walk. The next thing he says is your life can only be devoted to one master at a time. Look at verse 24. No one can have two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You, You can only have one master at a time. That's true of anything. And he gives us the example of money or materialism. You cannot serve both God and materialism. Why did he pick materialism? Probably because it's the most widespread and alluring of all the false gods. Almost everybody, especially in our wealthy, prosperous society, struggles with materialism to some extent. And Jesus says, as long as your heart is divided between materialistic things and the kingdom of God, you'll never make the mountain. 
You'll never make the summit. You won't have intimacy with the Father unless your heart is fully devoted to one master. And then he goes on in the next section to show us that God is a better master because God is a loving Father. God is a better master than materialism because God is a loving Father. Let me read this whole section here. Starting with verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What will we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, many people uh, underline or highlight verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But I think it would be just as important to highlight verse 32. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Your heavenly Father understands. See, God is a better master than materialism because God is a loving Father. God's resources are unlimited. And if we chase after the materialistic life, then we have to make our own life. We have to earn our own success. And how much is enough? I don't know. And what happens when the economy tanks? I don't know. My whole life, my whole meaning in life, my whole purpose in life, my whole path in life is put at risk. And here I am in slavery, drudgery, toil, every day, over and over and over again, trying to make my own financial security, trying to set up my own way. And Jesus says, look, God is a better Master, God's a loving father. Your father knows what you need. God's economy never suffers from inflation. It doesn't. God's kingdom never runs out of resources. His resources are unlimited. God says, look, I'm I'm your dad. I'm your father. I know what you need. I will take care of you. You put your eyes on me. You follow me. Come with me to the top of the mountain. Live in a loving and intimate relationship with me. And all the other things will take care of themselves. I'll make sure they do. Does that mean that you'll drive the nicest car on the block? I don't know. Maybe. But maybe not. But as long as you have a way to get around, who cares? Does that mean you'll live in the nicest house on your street? Possibly. But maybe not. But as long as you have a place to stay, who cares? God will take care of all of those things. And guess what? We will inherit the entire kingdom of heaven for all of eternity. So we've got 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years here. And then we'll have everything in the kingdom of heaven that is ours for the rest of eternity. 10 billion years from now, we can talk about how frustrating it was to spend $800 on my 11-year-old car again. Right? 10 billion years from now, you and I can have coffee and we'll laugh about that and we'll say, yeah, that was funny, wasn't it? 
10 billion years later. But does it really matter? Right? So God says, look, seek first the kingdom. Seek first God and his righteousness, that loving and intimate relationship with our Father in heaven, and everything else in life will take care of itself. That's what Jesus is teaching. There's only one path up to the peak of human existence, and that path is to follow Jesus together. Now, we're going to take communion together, and as we do, uh, I'm going to have the musicians come to play a little uh, music softly for some reflection time. I want us to ask the Holy Spirit where our eyes have tended to drift away from the mountain of God. Our heart can only be in one place at a time. Our eyes can only focus on one thing at a time. Our our lives can only be devoted to one master at a time. And sometimes, even if we have chosen to follow Jesus up the mountain, sometimes we get sidetracked. Sometimes we take a shortcut that leads us in the wrong direction. And so um, I have some prayer prompts that I want us to ask the Holy Spirit. What do you fear? What do you celebrate? And what is success? These questions will illuminate where our eyes are looking. Jesus said, don't be anxious about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll wear. Don't be anxious about those things, right? What do you fear? The things that we're afraid of sometimes reveal where our eyes are looking. What do you celebrate? What are you excited about? What are you anticipating? What are you looking forward to? What are the most important things in your life? What is success? Let's just take a moment and listen to the Holy Spirit to answer those questions in our heart. And and where our eyes have drifted away from Christ, let's confess that to him. And then we'll reaffirm our commitment to follow Jesus up the mountain by taking communion. Let's spend a couple of minutes in prayer. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to our hearts right now and reveal to us what, what we're afraid of, what we celebrate, how, how we define success. Would you show us where our eyes have drifted so that we can refocus on the prize of an intimate relationship with our Father in heaven? We're going to listen to you now, Lord.